In January, uh, we began a sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. And uh, as we heard, it's a lot of Nehemiah is about working together. And uh, the series, though, is called Kingdom, uh, was started out as being called Kingdom Potential. Now, this being our fifth week into the series, uh, the title has changed to God's Emerging Future. Our church is on a Ritter Church renewal journey. And God's emerging future is a phrase that's going to be used quite often in this journey, and you're going to hear it more often. And uh, you'll probably understand it more and more as time goes on. So let me briefly explain what this new title means and how uh, Nehemiah can be applied to it, and even the current church can be applied to it. So on the one side of the diagram, we have uh, the current reality there. You see it up there. And it's actually, current reality is quite straightforward. The current reality of the people of Israel in this time was that their walls were broken. They were vulnerable to the enemy. And if they chose to do nothing and just maintain status quo, which they actually did for quite some time, their current reality actually doesn't stay the same. Despite what people might think, the current reality always moves towards a default position, a default future. So the future of Jerusalem could look like further deterioration to the walls. Or even worse, the enemy could easily come in and take the city over, and they could destroy the people completely. So doing nothing implies some sort of default future, some sort of change that will occur, and likely not according to God's or their plans. However, we've learned through the first few chapters of Nehemiah that through prayer and listening to God and to the people... Nehemiah, along with the Jewish people, have discerned that God's will, or God's emerging future for the people, is to flourish. Now, ultimately, God has plans for a savior to come from the line of Judah. And that plan seems to be kind of way off the map for people. It's often difficult for people to understand God's plans fully. But they know that they have to continue on. So part of that journey at this time is to rebuild the walls. The Jews are in the midst of one of those green arrows at the top there, working towards God's emerging future. Now, God knows his plans. God knows the future. It's all worked out. And that's rather comforting for us. But yet often, from our perspective, it still feels like God's emerging future is is somewhat off the map, and we don't always get a clear vision of what that might look like, but we strive our best to move forward with God's will. It's like when we're in a snow squall, and I know it's hard to believe, but perhaps some people were in a snow squall this week, even. When you're in a snow squall, you can't always see too far ahead. And sometimes you just have to take it easy and to take it slow. Sometimes you just have to stop, but not for too long. And when it's more clearly, you you just keep on moving. As a church, we keep moving towards God's emerging future. And along the way, oh, it's not up there anymore. That's okay. This is the right slide. But along the way, if you saw in the center there, there's that creative tension. Sometimes there's conflict. Sometimes there's anxieties. But which, when dealt with appropriately, it can still bring growth and personal and corporate transformation. Last week when we read from Nehemiah 4, there was tension, and there was conflict, and that conflict came from external sources, which then led to internal discouragement. 
But the people, through God's grace and strength, overcame this conflict. And they got back on track. The devil did not get a hold of them. The external forces did not win. So what's next? Well, the devil will use internal forces. People will turn on their own people. The enemy attempts to prevail with the internal conflicts. And the enemy attempts to break down the unity within the Israelite community. The enemy attempts to bring a community centered on God's emerging future towards a default future. And in this situation, towards a self-centered community. And often a self-centered community is quite noticeable through its financial activities. What is happening with the money or not happening with the money. So our reading this morning is from Nehemiah 5, verses 1 through 19. Nehemiah 5. Before we read, let's uh, come to God in prayer. Lord God, you have blessed us to be in your presence here with your people, worshiping you, praising you, bringing glory to you. You've also blessed us with your word and the stories from your word that bring us hope, that bring us assurance, that bring us this story of salvation and how we are your children, your people, and you are our Father. How you bless us with many things. And Lord, we hear that again this morning, all your many blessings. And we also hear challenge before us and sometimes tension. And and Lord, we just pray that through the reading of this word and the proclamation of your word, that uh, we may see what it is that you are speaking to us. And may through, through your Holy Spirit, our lives change and our lives transform for your glory and for your honor. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah 5, verses uh, 1 through 19. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. And some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. And still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. And although we are the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to the others. And Nehemiah said, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. And I told them, you are charging your own people interest? So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields and vineyards and olive groves and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. And then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. 
I also shook out of the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 20, rather his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them, in addition to food and wine. And their assistants also lorded over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall, and all my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox and six choice sheep and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. We thank God for his word. Scripture often has no problem referring to financial issues and financial challenges. In the first five verses of chapter 5, we're presented with much disarray. It almost appears here that Nehemiah has a modern-day strike on his hands. There's an outcry of the Jewish people against their Jewish brothers and sisters. The Israelite people were fending for themselves and looking after their own interests. And there was no concern for the community as a whole. It was basically, what is mine is mine, was the attitude. The Israelites were in the process of rebuilding the wall and the gates of Jerusalem. And in order for this major building project to take place, builders and laborers had to be recruited from a wide area. So there were a number of people who came into the city from the outskirts of the city. People had to take a step of faith. Initially, these workers were selfless. They left their trades, their crafts, their professions. They left their farms to sacrifice for these two months of intense building. However, the city wasn't prepared to handle all the people who had gathered in to help. We're also told that there was a famine and that there was no sharing going on. In both verses 2 and 3, the people need to get grain. So there is grain, but it's not accessible to everyone. People were looking out for themselves rather than for one another. In addition, the people were being overtaxed by the government who used the money for the benefit of the king and nobles rather than for the country. In verse 15, we read that the previous governors placed a heavy burden upon the people. There were heavy taxes. Artaxerxes, uh, although over a thousand kilometers away, was taxing the region, including Jerusalem. And often the tax collectors would be corrupt and, the tax, and they would tax the people extra. Among the Jewish people, there were some paying excessive interest on loans and mortgages to their fellow Jews. They had to give up their fields and vineyards, and in some cases their sons and daughters, to pay for the amounts of interest owing. In the ancient times, people would often borrow money from those who had money. And in exchange, they and their family would work as slaves to work the interest and the debt down. But when people would charge such excessive interest, they'd never be free from their service to their master. 
In Jewish culture, it was legal to lend money to fellow Jews, but it was illegal to charge interest to fellow Jews. So community love and unity and justice are more important to God than any economic gain. Now, there were many issues occurring among the people. But overall, the conflict within the members of the community was in the form of selfishness. And this was evident in their sharing of their finances and goods. It was a self-centeredness where people were only looking after themselves. What began, as mentioned, as a selfless community, working together towards God's emerging future, quickly turned towards a default future of selfishness. There was unity in the rebuilding of the city wall, but the conflict and the disunity that rose among the people brought any advancement on the city wall to a halt. This self-centeredness brought the community to a standstill. It brought a people with one vision of rebuilding towards many individual visions of looking out for what they thought was number one, me, myself, and I. The Jewish people were looking after their own needs rather than seeking what was God's best for the community as a whole. The morale was already low due to the external conflict. And now, internal conflict was increasing and it created a hopeless state. Rather, state. The men thrive, rather the enemy thrives to see breakdown in the Israelite community. And the enemy will no doubt use financial means to create a self-centered community. That same enemy that entered into the community of Israel has infiltrated into the churches today. The self-centeredness pervades the church and challenges the sense of community. And especially with the areas of finances and our theology of sharing and offering our gifts to God through the church. Today, there seems to be such a lack of understanding of why we give and how we're to give. And I think we forget how important our offerings are. And if we stick to the current reality, what will happen is others won't be blessed and we won't be blessed. Now, I think we're to be thankful that we're not in a famine situation. We're likely not overcharging anybody on interest. And yes, we have a tax system here in Canada, but I'm going to assume that we're not being ripped off by tax collectors. Complaints about finances do not always mean that there's an issue with lack of finances. But there's often an issue with priorities and giving something up. And I think when it comes to giving up our finances, I think we're afraid of losing something perhaps losing a certain lifestyle that I, you, we've all been accustomed to. So where does this passage apply to us today? Well, it begs us to ask the question, what are we doing with our finances? How are we sharing? How are we sharing with the community, with the church, and then the church shares beyond? I think this passage has providentially come up quite timely. In 2016, we as a congregation, we had what's called an integrity gap. 
You see, God calls us to keep our promises. That's integrity, when we keep our promises. And we were unable to commit to our budget promised by all of us when we make public profession of faith. It's not about saying yes to the budget. You might think it is, but it's about saying yes to God. And we were about 40000 short last year. That means collectively we kept an extra 40000 and maybe even more in our pockets that wasn't able to be used by the church for God's purposes and his kingdom. And I don't think that we do that intentionally. But too often we forget. We forget who we are the church for. And we're not the church for me. Jesus is the head of the church. And he calls us to be the church for others. And we need to look at how we can best become the church that God calls us to be. What is God's emerging future for us, for his church? So this passage of Nehemiah, it teaches to rid the community of self-centeredness. Nehemiah teaches us four things here. He teaches us to stop, to restore, to promise, and to praise. In this passage, it states that Nehemiah got angry. Nehemiah reacted with anger, but he didn't react to the people. It was a controllable anger. It was a holy anger that was against the oppression of the people, against the injustice. Nehemiah got angry because people disobeyed God's will. And they were putting themselves first and not obeying the command of loving God and loving their neighbor as much as themselves. People were loving themselves more. But before his anger was expressed, he consulted with himself. Verse 7 states, Nehemiah pondered. He pondered their outcries in his mind. Nehemiah put his head and his heart together as he pondered direction from God. So Nehemiah set up a meeting. It was a meeting which included the nobles and officials and all the countrymen. Call it a sort of a congregational meeting, if you want, in which everyone attended, though. That was a little bit of a jab. (laughs) At this meeting, Nehemiah listened to the people and then went beyond listening to the people. Nehemiah told the people that what they are doing, they must stop. You can read that in verse 10. Stop charging interest to your fellow Jews. It's wrong. Permanent slavery from the Jews is wrong. Not sharing is wrong. Stop thinking about yourselves. And if there is an element of self-centeredness in the community, this must stop. After commanding the people to stop the sin, he tells the people to restore To restore things back to what they're supposed to be. They were once a selfless community. Loving God and loving his people. And in verse 11 he says for them to give back immediately their fields and vineyards and olive groves and houses. Give back the interest that's been illegally charged. Nehemiah wants the people to make things right. To correct the situation as soon as possible. And create a sincere attempt to reverse the damages that have been caused. Restore a sense of community. Nehemiah emphasizes healthy community. Restore yourselves back to the community that God has intended to you, for you to be. That loving and sharing community. He then has the people promise an oath before the priest. And we'll do that later as a congregation as well. Nehemiah knew human nature. And that people could quickly change their mind. 
People can easily say that, yes, we're going to stop, we'll restore things to how they should be, and then just continue on with that current reality towards the default future, their self-centeredness in this case. The people made an oath before God and his people, and this provided accountability. So Nehemiah says, stop. He says, restore things to what they should be, and make a promise before God and his people And then what happened? All of this resulted in praise. The people collectively shouted, Amen! And literally translated as, So be it! May the Lord do all that was said. It was an act of corporate worship. The praise to God is an important component. Verse 9 is important to look at. Because when there's selfishness and disunity and brokenness, then the people were not being God's examples to the neighborhood. The people were called to obey the Lord so that the Israelite nation would not lose their distinction in the eyes of the Gentile nations. Israel was given a unique position of testimony to the surrounding nations. And they were not only to declare God and His love, but to show who God is and who He calls them to be. They were called to be a holy nation, separate from all the others. So Nehemiah states, shouldn't you walk in the fear of the Lord? Walking in the fear of the Lord is obedience to the Lord. It's the the opposite of self-centeredness or love for oneself is love for others. Love God. Love His people. That's what we are called to do when we say we walk in the fear of the Lord. We often think that the fear of the Lord is some sort of reverence and be still and know that I am God. But the fear of the Lord is being obedient It's loving him, loving others. And that's what Jesus teaches in the New Testament. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And these aren't choices. They're commands. That's God's emerging future for his people. You see, God's name is at stake in the Israelite community. In verse 8, the people are to remember as far back as possible... And what he's saying to remember is remember how God led the people out of bondage, uh, slavery from Egypt, and, and then he led them out of Babylonian captivity. And we too need to remember because God's name is at stake within the church community. And God led each of us out of slavery from sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. We as a church have been given a unique position of testifying the love of Jesus to others. And our community perceives what goes on inside and outside the church. Now, I understand the church is not only about projecting a good image to the community. We are called to be separate from the world. It's about being that good image that Jesus calls the church to be. We're to be the body of Jesus to a hurting world. We're called to be the church for others. The community can see what we are doing and not doing with our finances and our possessions given to us by God. So let us all Young, old, students, employed, may we all be challenged by God's word to reflect what we are doing with our money and our possessions. Are we loving our neighbors with our sharing? Or are we loving our lifestyle more? What are we going to commit to and promise to? What will we say amen to? Nehemiah encourages us to make a promise before God and before one another. 
Michelle and I and our family, we try our best to give generously and cheerfully each year. But we also know that there is room to grow. We profess that God has richly blessed us. I think we give about 8% of our money to the church. And we're committed to taking that extra step of faith this year and increasing our percentage. Eventually, hopefully working towards 10%, Lord willing, hopefully beyond. And we commit before God and his people to that promise. God's word challenges us, young and old, to reflect on our giving today. To commit to God. To commit to his people. To commit to his church. To become the church for others. And may we be challenged to discern where God is leading us this year. In the sharing of our gifts. For his church and beyond. To be examples to one another. An example of God's grace and love to a world. Through his son, Jesus. Now I'm going to ask you people of God, for a verbal response. You're allowed to speak in church in the middle of the sermon. And the commitment that I'm asking you is are you going to commit to at least, at least pray about it and to talk about it, to see where God is leading you in terms of your finances and possessions. And if so, I encourage you to say amen. Amen. How cool would it be to go over budget in 2017? To be able to share our excess, maybe with the deacons. They put an appeal that they had thousands of, re- or thousands of dollars of requests. Maybe with your own Christian school, they're putting up a, doing a big building fund. How cool would it be that to share with them? With South Huron Public School, they need meals, supplies, shoes. With Jessica House, with Sanctuary, with Serve, with Salt. The list of our neighbors goes on. And God has seen the generosity of many people in our church when it comes to certain projects and even through the church budget. Many people have been generous. And let's continue to grow the kingdom of God by continuing to share our gifts with this church all to the glory of God for what Jesus has done for us. And folks, our goal is not a balanced budget, okay? Don't hear me saying that. Our goal is to share all that we're called to in order to change lives and lead people into a relationship with Jesus. That's God's mission. That's, that's the best return on investment that anybody could possibly have. So let's not be tempted to stay with the default future, which means we choose to be self-centered and we love our lifestyle more than the church. Let's move towards God's preferred future of being a missional church And becoming the church for others. By God's grace, let us move towards becoming the body of Christ. A diverse group of people worshipping as one. Celebrating God's gifts to us. And loving God and his people with all that we have. And this passage is not about guilt either. It's about gratitude. It's about gratitude for all that God has done for us. Through his son Jesus. And how we can respond out of love with our finances and possessions. And together we say... Amen. Let us pray. Let's stand to pray. And uh, we'll follow that prayer with Spirit of the Living God. So the order of worship has changed somewhat. We're not singing Bind Us Together, but Spirit of the Living God. Let's stand.
are Lord over all, and that includes our possessions and finances. And you desire for us to use everything to your glory, to your honor, and to build your kingdom here on earth. So Lord, where we may be self-centered with our finances or other things in our life, turn our hearts to you. And turn our hearts to sharing with your people. May you be the center of Jesus and not ourselves. Through your spirit, challenge us to be generous and cheerful givers. Challenge us to be examples to one another and to be a light that shines and shares to the community and world around us. Prompt those among us who have not been sharing with your body. Prompt those among us who have been sharing, but you're calling us to reflect on our offerings and respond further in faith. Work in us and shape us for your glory and for your purposes and for all that you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ. It is only in his name that we pray and together we sing. Amen.